Welcome to Wild Quincy, a podcast that looks into the little-known and forgotten past of Quincy, Illinois. The thought of a quadruple homicide happening in the Quincy area seems impossible, but that is exactly what happened just outside of town over 100 years ago. We retrace the events that occurred in the 1912 murder of the Fanschmidt family with author Beth Lane coming up next. Now, here's your host, Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Back here after a a long break, an unwanted break, an unneeded break, but an unfortunate break. Travis, uh, we are past the symptoms of that nasty COVID. Boy, it hit you and uh, surprised me that you came down with that. And then literally the day I think uh, after you were kind of out of the woods, my whole family got it. And it was... (laughs) And we never saw each other, yeah. so it wasn't like yeah. we gave it to each other. It I mean, just... we sanitize our microphones after every recording. So. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that really set us back, unfortunately. And we appreciate everyone's patience and uh, nice emails and kind words of encouragement of uh, getting better. And we, we are, we're nearly there. We're, as good, we're at least as good as I was kind of beforehand, which wasn't amazing. <laughs> uh, no, it's been, it's, been a, uh, it's, it's been a crazy time, and, and we definitely uh, appreciate you holding on. We've, ironically, one thing I do want to talk about, though, Travis, is I want to talk about uh, you making a post on Facebook and mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's spawning some things. So you want to tell us about that? Yeah, I, it's not a new post by any means. I th- I think uh, we have a merch store. We don't get too crazy with the promotion of it. But gosh, it feels like years ago. I guess maybe it was a year ago or more where I kind of threw some initial designs up there. And one of them was kind of what I called a, a Quincy food trifecta. And I believe it says uh, Jeff's special made right angel food cupcake or something in that order. And out of nowhere, someone tags the the owner of Underbrinks, uh, Amy Stevens. Amy and I actually went to high school together. We weren't super close, um, but I've been you know I follow from afar and think she's doing an amazing job carrying on Underbrinks. And so <laughs> she comes back and on the the post and is like, oh wow! And from that, like seven people shared it. And I think we sold a few of those <laughs> randomly too, <laughs> which is uh, great. And I, I, the only thing I could think is that attributed to somewhat of a little spike in downloads uh, in our in yeah. our absence there. So, uh, thank you to Amy if you're listening, and uh, keep those Angel Food cupcakes coming. I just had a, a apple. Uh, turnover from there not more than a week ago Ooh. my family snuck up there for some snacks and boy that so good chris so they chris. have a gluten-free cupcake there uh and it tastes really good it actually tastes like a normal cupcake so uh, yeah they do an awesome job our wedding cake came from under is that right so, yeah that right? so yeah you can't go wrong i mean i think some people were probably nervous when when she took over from uh i forget the company the name of the family beforehand but she is just carrying on the tradition, going down some new avenues. I mean, they got the cool new kind of branding. And, and uh, no, it's awesome. It's so cool to see that tradition carrying on and underbrinks, you know, 
rocking it. Oh, it's been around for forever. It's yeah, a it's tradition. It's a Quincy yeah, tradition. Absolutely. Yeah, so, absolutely. yeah, no, thanks and welcome to all the, the new uh, new people that are listening and make sure to go check out the Patreon side as well. We have a bunch of cool content on there. But uh, speaking of Patreon, one of our Patreon members, Travis, uh, told us a little something about uh, back in 2003 of our last episode talking about tornadoes. He talked about uh, something more specific in northern Adams County. Yeah, he, uh, he mentioned that the... Uh uh, I guess it was the March tenth, two thousand three tornado. I think we we touched on that May briefly. 10th. Uh, but, but May tenth, you're right. Sorry, I was I was misreading. Yeah, May tenth. I, I guess according uh, to uh, Kevin, this is Kevin Anderson, by the way. We love Kevin. Rated an F two went uh, by the NWS, and I guess it started there in uh, Missouri, went through Canton and crossed the into Lima. Man, it destroyed fifteen homes, damaged sixteen other homes. A post office, a village hall, a martial law. I mean, I think we talked a little bit about that from back in the day, but this was, mm-hmm. you know, 2003. So uh, definitely a big deal when martial law is being called into place by the Illinois yeah. State Police. Uh, he, he gives a great account because, as, as we know, Kevin, I, I I believe he's in the volunteer fire department of you know, Golden, if, if memory serves. He said a few interesting things came about because of that storm it was deemed that Adams County needed an emergency management agency, and, and right then John Simon was selected to be the new manager of the agency. And uh, John then determined that a storm spotter network was needed in Adams County. So a lot of the local fire departments were asked to volunteer and be part of that new storm spotters network. So uh, lots more cool stuff from that story. Unfortunately, we can't get into everything right now, but we always appreciate Kevin's insight. And Mayor of Big Neck always comes through with tasty tidbits, so we appreciate your <laughs> feedback, Kevin. And I actually ran into Kevin up at the Adams County Fair. Uh, he was up there for the Tractor Pull night, and I was there as well. And uh, I ran into him, and, and we got to talking about that. And one of the things that he brought up was about the EMS and and the and having a spotter uh, network. You're starting to have spotters in Adams County. And the funny thing about that, Travis, was I was uh, was wasn't working at WGM at the time, but I was uh, doing storm chasing and stuff and, and weather stuff with them. And uh, we held after that event or after those uh, tornadoes went through in May of 2003. We held a storm spotter class that following year in 2004. It was at John Wood. It was in the basement of the new building. And uh, we thought, oh, you know, 10, 20. That's usually the turnout for storm spotters for a course, you know, in general. There was like over 200 people that went to the storm spotter class that night. (laughs) Yeah. So it was one of those things with everything that happened with uh, the tornadoes that came through the area. And it it was just an explosion that uh, if you're familiar that it's uh, I believe it's um, it's the cafeteria now is downstairs uh, at John Wood. That place was packed to the gills with people in there for that storm spotter class. That's cool. I mean, that's cool that there was that much curiosity and, uh, yeah. you know, it's always good. <laughs> There's so much yeah. apathy sometimes when it comes to things like that. So to get that much of a response. That's Quincy for you though, right? That's Quincy. You yeah. turn out. That's Adams County. So uh, right. turn Absolutely. out and help and, and make sure that you help it down the road. And, uh, uh, you know, that may be due, Travis, to the German immigrants that came into oh, the city of Quincy. I'm sensing a segue, Chris. Ah, there is, and it's a segue to the question of the day. Are you ready for this, Travis? I rarely am. I'll continue that trend today. What, what do you got for <laughs> me? Between 1840s and 1870s, Quincy had the, a large influx of German migrants into town. By 1870, what percentage of the population was German in Quincy? I'm going to give you some options. Was it 18%, 26%, 43%, or 54%? Okay. 
give you okay. some weird numbers there. But again, here's the question. Between 1840s and 1870s, Quincy had a large influx of German migrants coming into town. By 1870, what was the percentage of the population? Was it 18%, 26%, 43 or 54%? Well, I'll simmer on that, and uh, we'll check back in on that near the end of the show. When we come back, we are going to be talking to an author of one of the most interesting books I think has ever come out of the Quincy area. We're going to be talking about the Fan Schmidt murders, and it's coming up next here on Wild Quincy. Here's what you missed on the latest After Hours episode of Wild Quincy. So let's say a cow is in a tornado. It's in the full twister okay. mode, right? It lands, well, probably not living. If you were to butcher that cow immediately, Chris, <laughs> be fine. would it be extra tenderized? I mean, would that steak be super <laughs> no. tender? No. I don't think it would make a difference on the meat. <laughs> Our After Hours episodes are available exclusively for Patreon members by going to patreon.com slash wildquincy. For just a couple dollars a month, not only will you double the amount of Wild Quincy episodes at your fingertips, but you'll also be supporting our efforts as we continue to dive into the wild and crazy history of our favorite town. Also, as a Patreon member, you can take part in our live events and Patreon-only outings, as well as having access to our regular episodes two days before they are released to the public. It's easy. Just head to patreon.com slash wildquincy. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash wildquincy and become a wild thing today. So we are here with uh, an author, and we always like talking to the authors uh, with books. And this book in particular is an exciting one. I'm not going to give away any details. I'm sure we've already given a lot away uh, before we even got to this point. But Travis, I'm going to let you do the honors in introducing our guest for this episode. Absolutely. It, it is truly a pleasure and honor. We've we've often had this topic in our queue, even since day one when we were planning this podcast, Chris. I'd say probably top 10 ideas and it was always kind of in our, our in our back of our minds where we're going to you know contact the the source of the book you know Beth Lane who's joining us and out of the blue she uh, contacted us not too long ago and we were so ecstatic to you know she was kind enough to say she'd come on and then we got covid you got covid and then we <laughs> yep. had to postpone like 2 weeks and then i got covid right after you got covid and it was two more weeks. And so we felt terrible, but she was kind enough and understanding to join us. And we're so happy to welcome Beth Lane to Wild Quincy. Beth, how are you? I'm just fine. Thank you. And I'm delighted to be here. Well, excellent. Well, we, we are ecstatic as well. Uh, it's it's quite a story. You know, painting a picture, this was September 27th, late September 27th, early morning, September 28th. William Taft was the president. Highland Park here in Quincy, which you might know as Casino Lanes now, was hosting a seafood dinner with all kinds of lovely outdoor attractions. 50 cents to get in on that smorgasbord. Comstock Castle Stove Company was advertising its economy base burner that would miraculously light by a match. We're talking high-tech efficiency in the 1912 here. But out a few miles to the east of Quincy, things were not so cheery. It was the scene of a, one of the worst uh, murders that I can think of, certainly, here in, in this area or in Illinois in general. And it was of the Fanschmidt family. Beth, who were these people? 
they were very prosperous farmers who lived out by the village of Payson. And there were, it was a family of four, a mother, a father, a daughter, a son who wasn't there at the time. And they were actually boarding a school teacher named Emma Kempen. So there was four people like full-time living at the house at that point, right? Right. Gotcha. Well, I guess it all really started, uh, I believe a neighbor awoke or, or in the more early morning hours saw that their house was on fire, right? Yeah, they saw fire in the distance and uh, raised the alarm on the those wonderful old party lines that there used to be and uh, called everybody together, but there was really nothing they could do to save the house at that point. They had a windmill for water, but that was about it. Now, was there any indication if it was the house was abandoned or if the family was home or what? How did this whole timeline play out uh, before they discovered the grisly results of what had actually happened at this this fire? Well, the last time they saw the the family was on Friday night in Payson. The family had gone to the town and done a bunch of shopping and gone to a political rally and. Um, the errands you kind of do and come home and nobody saw them all day Saturday, but then Saturday night, really late, early Sunday morning, uh, one of the neighbors who was coming home from Quincy about two o'clock in the morning um, noticed fire, that awful red color that bounces off the clouds. And they saw that in the distance. And one of them climbed up um, a few steps on his windmill tower and saw that was the Fanschmidt house and headed over there. And about that point, um, they got on the phone and roused some other people and troops started gathering. And at what point did they realize, you know, I think the initial hope was, okay, maybe they were gone. Maybe they were traveling and seeing family. What was the indicator that no, there was no such luck? Yeah, it it seemed like anybody should be able to get out of that house because there, it was two story and the bedroom windows opened onto a porch roof. But when they really got to looking, the buggy was in the barn and all the horses were there mm. and the horses hadn't been they were pretty frantic because they hadn't been fed or watered in a while. So that was their first clue. So at, at, at that point, was the the general consensus okay, this is a horrific accident, a fire. I mean, what, what started leading to the discovery of what actually happened at this, at this scene? Yeah, I don't think they really knew until it burned down enough that they could pull the roof off. Mm -hmm. had a metal roof, and they literally cut the phone lines, shimmied up the poles, cut the phone lines, and then came down and punched a hole in the metal roof with a pitchfork fed the wire through and then used that to pull the hot metal off of the flattened house remains. And when they did that, they started finding bodies. And this wasn't just your typical burn victims. What, what kind of horrors did no. await them here? Well, they didn't really see the full extent of it until they got the bodies out of the house, but they were pretty well, there were sharp, wounds to the heads they found the three women and all of the women had cut marks on them mm. and they could not find the father for the longest time um, they eventually found part of his body in the basement of the house wow 
and that's a really interesting thing. There, there are some really odd things about this crime that they never explained. And that's one of them, how that man's body got to the basement because the basement was not in a place where the body would have fallen in the natural course of the fire. Really? The, the house was two rooms downstairs, two rooms upstairs with a stairway in the middle. And when they were expecting company, all the women, that would be the mother, the daughter, and the school teacher would sleep in the West room upstairs. And whoever, if it was a man coming, then if it was Ray coming home, the son, he and his dad would then sleep in the East room. Hmm. So the, the cellar was under a room on the north so it, it couldn't have fallen in there it had to have been yeah. put there enough beating around the bush here i mean it, it appears that these people had been brutally murdered with some kind of yes. i think axe is kind of the general consensus at this time so we're looking at uh just unheard of brutal murder and then it appears the fire may have been an attempt to maybe cover the tracks a little bit is that what the thought was early on that's that's the thought yeah and it may have the fire may actually have been set twice really it may not have taken the first time because there was some later testimony about smelling smoke and odd smells on saturday but no smoke was seen and nothing was seen burning until sunday so um the the theory was that the fire had been maybe the whole murders had happened late Friday night and the fire had been set, but hadn't caught. I see. So they okay. had to come back to do it. So we talked about the uh, where a possible suspect, it's obviously been a murder. When does the attention or how does the attention of the police go to who the suspect is? How do they how do they come to a conclusion of of who the suspect possibly is? Well, I think at the fire itself, when the crowd started gathering, the Ray, who was the son, um, was informed by his uncle. They called around and called Quincy and got his uncle, one of his uncles in Quincy, who went up and got Where him. Where was Ray at this point, if not living at home? Ray was working at a um, job site at the Freeze store, which was just north of the railroad tracks on North 12th, north that's of basically where, That's home. basically where I live. Right Is that now. it? Okay. Yeah, in yeah, your yeah. backyard then. Absolutely. Yeah, Ray was yeah. in your backyard. That's refreshing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> blasting out land so that Freeze, could, who owned a store there, could put in a railroad track spur. Okay, sorry, I kind of took us off track there. Let's get back okay. to Chris's question, how the suspects kind of came to the surface. And you were saying it kind of started at the night of the, or the morning after the fire. Is that right? Yeah, when Ray showed up, he showed up with his aunt. And Ray, for whatever reason, he was in shock. He, he didn't, I don't know, didn't care, whatever it was. He was very stoic. Mm. And people, the crowds that were gathering, and there were crowds, there were up to 3,000 people toured that place within eight hours of the fire, 12 hours of the fire. Um, So Ray was not acting the way people thought he should. He did not seem to be devastated. So that was a big red flag at the moment. It it seemed to be. Uh Uh, Was was there any other uh, suspects besides Ray early on? No. 
not really. That's, that's interesting. That's interesting. Surely just the his stoic attitude wasn't the only kind of case that they built against Ray, was it? What else was was there? Well, Ray was a pretty flamboyant guy. He was not the typical son of a farmer who wanted to be a farmer. Ray was an entrepreneur. Ray was a sort of a celebrity hound. He called himself Dynamite Fan Schmidt. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because he was in the blasting business. It's a bold, that's a bold nickname. Uh-huh. He, uh, he had a trademark dress. He always dressed in khakis and had a little red string tie and often wore um, leather leggings up to his knee. So, and he had a very flashy team of horses and a sort of unusual buggy. It was sort of like a, a sports car buggy. It was oh. smaller and had the wheels were cut high. So it would handle, it would turn really sharply, much uh, shorter than a regular bu buggy would. So he, he did not fit the mold. Right, right. Now, the, speaking of the buggy, early on, um, was there, I believe there was evidence of maybe some kind of tracks. Is, does that ring any bells? Um, they found a horse track in the barn lot that matched one of Ray's horses. Horseshoes um, often were fitted specially to the horse. And if you had a horse that had some kind of a problem, you could make almost like an orthotic shoe today. Oh. It would compensate one way or another. And this shoe had a bar on it, an extra extension that would keep one of its of the hooves from hitting another hoof and hurting the horse when it was going fast. So this made not your normal horseshoe print, but your normal horseshoe print with a little extension on it. So it was very distinctive. Interesting. Interesting. The odd thing, well, there are lots of odd things about that print, <laughs> but there wasn't, there was a light rain that night. It was kind of cloudy. There was enough rain to settle the dust, but not enough to make mud. And this print was found in the mud. So it kind of matches the time frame then, potentially. It kind of doesn't really match if the time mud, frame. If it was mud, then it would indicate that it was older. It really doesn't, because there wasn't enough rain to make mud. But here's there the, was I mean, There was mud from an earlier rain days before. So right there, you could be saying that he came and visited his his family Wednesday or Tuesday of the week before or the week that it happened. It wasn't necessarily that Friday night. Exactly. And I think wow. we're going to okay. come back to this when we introduce another element of this story um, of the canine variety. But yeah, yeah, it, it's not exactly crazy evidence when you have a someone who takes the same route often. It, it really... It's easy, like you said, Chris, to kind of like, let's put this in the context of reality versus this one aspect of an investigation. And, and you know, it's interesting. I mean, what kind of motive, assuming if, if Ray was a suspect, what kind of motive would he have had to murder his family? I mean, this is, an, this is, this is crazy. The conjecture was, of course, that it had to do with money. Ray was fast and loose with his money. He was always going, he always had a plan to make more. He was very ambitious, but he would sometimes spend it before he had it, or he would get it and he got a thousand dollars from 
um, a judge in Missouri where he had done some work. And he sort of promised that $1,000 in about six different ways, basically. Oh, okay, boy. that's an exaggeration. Sure, sure, sure. He had a track record. He did. He had a track record of bouncing checks, and then his dad would bail him out. If his dad wasn't home, his uncle would bail him out. He always ended up okay, but it was definitely brinkmanship. Gotcha. And the theory was that his dad had had enough of it and said no more. Mm. So are we looking at like an inheritance situation here of potentially trying to get more money? Because if he kills his whole family, he's the only one that's going to get an inheritance, right? That is true. My take on Ray would be more that it would be a flash of rage. anger, passion, rage. Yeah. I don't think this was a planned thing. That would certainly explain the veracity of the state of the body found on uh, Charles, the father, uh, as opposed to the women who were victims that night. Uh, boy, that's, oof. yeah, if you think about it that way, that kind of starts painting a pretty pretty dire picture of what might have gone down that night. There, there are a few other clues about that, too, because the bank had sent a letter to both Ray and his dad, State Street Bank had, and the letter was never found at the farm. It wasn't in the mailbox. Oh. The letter out there was missing. But interestingly enough, what was still found was the some of the groceries, like they bought sugar Friday night in Payson and the sugar was still in the buggy hmm. when the fire happened. And I'm thinking, hmm, now you might forget some stuff in your car if you came home from the grocery store, but if it's locked up in a car in a garage, that's a far cry from spending your money on sugar that's sitting in an open buggy in a barn. I just don't think they'd forget that. That is strange when you break it down like that. Early on before, I mean, the whole, I guess, town or area kind of turned on Ray as the prime suspect. Only, what was it, a month earlier, a horrific axe murder took place just over in uh, Villisca, Iowa. Yeah. That came up quite a bit in, in conversation around here, and I think there was a lot of fear that maybe there's some maniac running around with an axe. Was there any similarities or any any big differences between the murder that happened in Villisca? Was it in the same ballpark, or was it just kind of a, a beast of a different color? I think it was different. There definitely was a maniac running around chopping people up, but he was doing it very close to railroad tracks. He was oh. never farther than 100 yards. His targets were never farther. I believe it's 100 yards. Maybe it's 200 yards. Anyway, it's close enough to a railroad track that he could get there, do whatever he was going to do, get back on a train and be gone. And there's no train closer than Fall Creek to uh, the Fanschmidt house. It so just that, doesn't. That would have been a stretch. Fit. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Was there a lot of newspaper reporting about Velisca leading up to what happened in in Payson was there was there any way that maybe somebody could have like saw oh axe murder maybe that's the way to kill somebody is that possible or was it even in the news back in in this time in the Quincy area did you ever get a chance to research that what's really fascinating is that when you go back there's a lot of of sharp edge attacks knives hatchets axes um, I don't believe there was a whole lot about Valeska, but people were people and they didn't have guns, but they had knives and axes. And you read the papers, 
there was a fair amount of that going on. Right. Am I misremembering or did, uh, gosh, was it uh, the, the parents of, uh, of uh, Emma Campen, the father? Did, did, did some kind of detective who was involved in Villisca actually come down to Quincy? Is that, is that, am I just misremembering something or? No, you're, you're right. The governor of Iowa sent down the sheriff from up there. We had Pinkertons from Chicago. We had people from, I think there was one from Kansas City. We had, law enforcement descended on Quincy. So it wasn't just a harebrained theory that maybe this was, you know, involved with Velisca. They actually looked into it, it looks like, pretty seriously. It terrorized the country. Right. I mean the countryside. People started locking doors, carrying axes to go milk the cows and stuff that had never happened before. They arrested this one poor guy who was working at a tomato canning place, a hobo who came through town and he had all these red stains on his clothes and they hauled him <laughs> off to jail oh, no. before they figured out it was tomatoes. <laughs> tomatoes. <laughs> wow. What a rough, rough, wrong place, wow. wrong time with tomatoes. Yeah. 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 Oh my. That's that's hard. It's hard to laugh at that, but boy, you gotta find a little humor in this i guess there there was really no murder of this kind of magnitude in the area before this was there i don't think so there were some other horrific crimes but none that involved this many people and none that i'm aware of that had both murder and arson i'm going to circle back to something i brought up earlier but there's there's two names that i think may be my favorite names in in this book and if you're not really paying attention, you could get real confused real easily. And that would be Nick Carter and Roger Williams. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they sound like just fine, distinguished gentlemen, only the, the problem is they really weren't gentlemen at all. Were they, what were they, who were they? <laughs> no, they were bloodhounds. So the two, <laughs> two bloodhounds. bloodhounds. <laughs> and they were brought in. What was the goal of, of having them come down here? Well, they were brought in to track the scent of the murderer. Right. which is a very tall order considering that by the time they got here on Monday, it was about four or five days since the murders. And there had been about 3000 people over the crime scene. <laughs> Other <laughs> than that, <laughs> yeah, should have been easy. And as crazy as that is, they did manage through a exhaustive uh, day to actually make it all the way to the work camp. Is, is that right? Well, they did. They uh, took a scent off that horseshoe, which everybody knew was Ray's, and eventually tracked Ray with one rather major detour back to his <laughs> camp. But right. since he had driven that road multiple right. times. A little chink in the armor of that. that, that yeah, yeah, it yeah. just didn't seem very compelling to me. Now, and was he there? You said he was there leading up to it. Did Was that the route maybe he took when he heard about the fire and heard about what happened and came out to the house too? Uh, no, I think he took the other way out, but he took that way back. I mean, there are two, two ways you could go, and it just makes a big circle. Let's jump ahead a little bit to the... To the, the trial. I mean, the Ray Ray had been pretty much identified as the suspect. You know, your earlier information that he had a very stoic reaction was kind of a trend even throughout all of the trial. True. Not much emotion was going to be shown by this this kid. And he was, what, 23, I think, at the time? Is that right? No, he he had just barely turned 21 at the time 21. of the trial. Okay. So, I mean, he's there's a young kid. I mean, boy, to be that stone-faced in such adversity is 
it does raise an eyebrow or two. Obviously, a lot a lot of, of testimony was given. Let's break it down a little bit. Uh, from a medical perspective, what what kind of people were testifying on the medical side? I'm guessing you probably had maybe undertakers, doctors, and what kind of validity could they really offer at the time from a standpoint of forensics? Was there anything they could really say that was scientific fact and not speculation at the time? Yeah, it's so difficult for them. They had so little science. First of all, they had to prove that the bodies were who they said they were. And they had to essentially do that by proving nobody had seen these people alive since the fire. So therefore, it probably had to be them. They finally identified the women by hair style and by uh, Blanche had a gold tooth filling that they that they used. And then 10 days after the fire, they of course, they found the bloody clothes, the so-called bloody clothes in the vault. Let's talk about that. That's an important point. What where were what were these bloody clothes and where were they found? Well, that's another very interesting piece of evidence. They were found up where Ray was camping at his work site. There was a family home and store, and they had their own private outhouse. And there was another outhouse for the workmen. Well, they found these clothes when the family tore down their own personal private outhouse to rebuild it. And they were found on top of the sort of almost full pit. And they had, they're always referred to as the bloody clothes. But when you really look carefully, what they had were teeny tiny little drops of red stuff on them. So they couldn't even say without a doubt that it was blood. They had all kinds of wonderful expert witnesses out of Chicago. They had this wonderful German doctor named Hectone who who just confounded the defense attorneys and vice versa with his descriptions of how you got rabbit serum and you put the blood in the test tube with this rabbit serum and you let it sit and then you had to blow on it a certain way and if it made one size bubbles it was human blood and if it didn't it was something else and Oh, my goodness. So we're talking fringe science at at best right now. We're we're talking there just barely figuring out how to tell the difference between animal blood and human blood, not even blood type. We have to we have to throw out the possibility it could have been tomatoes as well. Correct. (laughs) I think they could eliminate that, but I wouldn't swear to (laughs) that ketchup will get you every time. So how much of a spectacle was this trial? This took place at the, the courthouse. Uh, I, I believe, and correct me, my, my history gets a little foggy on some of this courthouse stuff. But this was at the courthouse that is where the current courthouse was back in the day before, uh, I believe, the this tornado. This pre-tornado. Yeah. Pre- oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, and uh, the jail courthouse. cells were in the bottom. Yeah, the courthouse was a big, huge room, had a second-story gallery. And the whole thing was so packed and so crowded for so long, they finally had to condemn the gallery. They overcrowded the gallery until it wasn't safe anymore. Oh, wow. Jeez. Yeah, it it was, I call it the Menendez brothers plus O.J. Simpson. If you put those two (laughs) together and put it in Quincy, that's about the amount of 
um, brouhaha you'd have over this Only crowd. the white Bronco was a literal Bronco this time. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Good, good point, yeah. <laughs> so we have, we have this spectacle of a case. Let's talk a little bit from a high level of how were the defense and the prosecution matched up? Were, were they very qualified? Was there, Did anybody have the upper hand? What was the general... I mean, you've done a great, amazing, just it feels like you're in the courtroom. You've been able to go through all this testimony, which I can only imagine the hours it took. What was your take off who had the upper hand? I think probably the defense had the more aggressive, more vociferous lawyers. But the only lawyer who'd ever had experience in a murder trial was John Wall, who had been hired by the school teacher Emma Kempen's parents to help the prosecution because the prosecutor um, Wolf, Fred Wolf, was brand new to the job. And he and um, his assistant, I mean, they'd been lawyers for a while, but they'd never had to prosecute a murder trial. This is going straight to the big leagues. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I don't believe either the defense lawyers had prosecuted or defended a murder trial either, but they they had a really amazing reputation in town. <laughs> I believe if I was up for murder, I'd hire those guys. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean it. It was a they made a compelling case, and boy, it uh, it was an interesting mix. And and to really you know get the full picture, it's it's definitely worth picking up a copy of the book. Because the devil's really in the details. And I mean, it, it's interesting to watch that because it, it comes across like if you're watching a Hollywood movie today, there's similarities and just like the objections are like right off the bat. And, it, you know, even though the times have changed, the real uh, method to the madness maybe hasn't evolved that much from a from a legal standpoint. Yeah, I think that maybe we are a little more fair today. It, it did not strike me that the judge was exactly impartial. But then I'm not a lawyer, and I don't know whether right. I was reading that right. Well, it felt like everyone was against Ray at this point. Yeah. One thing that really surprised me was Ray's grandfather, C.C. Fanschmidt, was a stern advocate that Ray was guilty and very passionate. This was in the, kind of the patriarch of the family. He uh, apparently had a horrible case of the hiccups, as an aside. But... He was convinced that Ray was the killer. Why was he so against Ray? He from just the start? did not approve of the boy at all. I don't was, think Ray could have. Yeah, I don't think Ray could have done anything that would have pleased that man at all. Because he was a very, I think, uh, very hardcore, born in Germany, a very, you know, straight and narrow, probably uh, Germany or Russia. There's a little no Germany. Germany. I think okay. Yeah. Yeah, I saw some a report that kind of made me double double question that. But yeah, it. Uh, that's some damning evidence if you're a jury, I think, to have this own boy's grandfather be so, so, you know, not in his corner. Yeah. Sitting at the prosecution table. Right. It, it split the family. They weren't all that way. But but the old man was to his dying day. He left Ray a dollar in his will. Right. I saw that. That boy talk about a smack in the face. Yeah. What's interesting here is is the method of of the trial and what they were trying to make him guilty of. You would think in this scenario that a murder trial in this situation would be for the four people that died. 
But that's not how it worked back then. No, they charged him with the murder of his sister first. Why? Why just his sister? I do not understand that. And they only charged him with the murder of his sister, but then they brought in evidence from all the other bodies, yeah, which I'm know, pretty sure you can't do you today. You can't do that. Yeah. No. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I, wondered, I wondered about that. And I don't know what I stumbled across, but it it may have been, and I could be totally talking out of school. It, it sounds like it might have been a strategy to where if they were innocent of the first murder, they could they could try them separately in hopes that maybe they could get them on the next. So That's right. Have, for more than one chance to get somebody. Is that kind of your your reading of it just from a high high level? I think so. Uh-huh. I mean, there's so much to this trial. We could spend episodes of Wild Quincy just talking about the back and forth that happened in this trial. I mean, the little weird little outburst of kind of comedic uh side notes and color to I mean, the horrific detailed description of the the state of the the bodies. I mean, this this played out like a Hollywood movie. I mean, what, what, what shocked you the most on this first trial, Beth? I know we we haven't exactly put a pin in the end of it, but did anything really stick out as surprising? I mean, I'm sure a lot of things did, but anything specifically popped to mind? Well, I think that pulling in the evidence from the other bodies was just over the line. I mean, they were they were trying to get him for Blanche's murder, but they could not show axe wounds on Blanche, so they brought in the axe wounds that had appeared on the teacher and put a doctor on the stand that said, can you say that those wounds weren't the same on the two bodies? And the guy goes, oh, no, they could have been. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, it was it was I won't say lackadaisical, but I mean, it's like it was very easy to find someone who would be in your corner, I think, from a testimonial standpoint, because the forensics just weren't there. I no. mean, other than the guy with the science kit, you know, with rabbit blood, <laughs> that was probably the closest we got to you know some kind of scientific evaluation. I know a lot was made out of out of the the time it, the blood would coagulate, you know, after a, a a corpse was dead, and then a lot of that from a timing standpoint. Yeah, but yeah. boy, there there wasn't a lot of definitiveness there, and I think it may have just muddied the water in the end of, at the at the end of the day. What's your take on that? There were a lot of things they wouldn't let in, too. And most of them, there were several women who could have testified as witnesses that they wouldn't let in. Really? The, they wouldn't let the grocer's wife testify. He had to testify for her. They wouldn't let the telephone operator in Payson testify. I, I could not figure out why some stuff got in and other things didn't. I just didn't understand all that. Well, let's let's cut to the chase on this first trial. The jury was handed the case. And was this like weeks of deliberation? How, how long did it take to reach a verdict? Yeah, no time at all. Really? Yeah, they, they were very fast. I think it probably took them longer to elect a foreman than it did to uh, vote him guilty. So what was Ray's fate here at this, this trial? It took place in Quincy. He was judged to be guilty and sentenced to hang. But he didn't, did he? What happened? Nope. Well, at the very last minute, because of his lawyers being very good at stretching things out, they filed an appeal. Uh, They filed an appeal to the Illinois State Supreme Court in October. The trial was over in April. He was to be sentenced in June. They let him get sentenced. And then they filed the appeal in the fall. 
just before the term, that court term ended. So that they knew they'd have then more months until the next court came into session in January. You're right. I want these guys on my team. If I, if I remember, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty smart. That's, that's good lawyering right there. Yeah. So did, were they able to get the appeal? Did they, what, what yes. happened next? So they got the appeal. And of course, Quincy was sure that it wouldn't do them any good, but it did. The Illinois Supreme Court reversed the guilty sentence and in their first ruling said that basically they didn't have enough money, uh, enough evidence to sentence him at all. And they were very critical of the trial. They should have they cited a a number of errors. They should have uh, let the trial be moved. They shouldn't have let in all the bloodhound evidence. They just had a whole laundry list of things that were wrong with the trial. And that made the prosecution so mad that Mm -hmm. they you can't appeal an appeal, but there (laughs) is a mechanism you can send it back and ask for clarification or something like that, which they did. And the Supreme Court toned it down a little bit. They took out the sentence that said there wasn't enough evidence to convict him. So so he's found innocent in Macomb. Right. He's sentenced to a second trial. They haul him up to Macomb and do it again. But they don't they don't have the bloodhound evidence. They don't have a lot. They've thrown out a lot of this stuff that was pretty shaky that they let in on the first trial. So he is handily declared innocent in Macomb. So is that it then? Is he off the. Oh, no. No, no. He walks out of the courtroom and they rearrest him for one of the other murders. <laughs> OK, so now they're methodically going through yeah. the victims, like thinking, OK, well, let's see if we can get this next one to stick. So right. w- so we got another trial. Where's this? Where's the next trial? take? Place? This one is clear up at a little town called Princeton up by Chicago. It's on the railroad track so they can get there. And what what is what's the rundown there? The rundown there is they have even less evidence to present. And once again, he is found um, innocent. Mm. So they bring him back to Quincy and say, "Okay, son, get out of town. (laughs) You you may be innocent, but you can't stay here. Now, theoretically, they probably could have tried again. But at that point, it seemed like a losing battle, probably. Right. They had spent 15 percent of the tax revenue of the whole county from 1912 prosecuting this guy. Oh, my gosh. I mean, there's stories in the paper where they couldn't build any bridges that year because they didn't have any money because they were (laughs) prosecuting Fanchman. Oh, my God. All right. So Ray walks and he he walks. walks out of Princeton. Gets on the train, probably, what, gets his stuff together in Quincy and uh, probably hightails it, right? Yeah, he goes to his, some relatives over at Wichita, Kansas. You know, I think there's an aspect of this story that I, I overlooked and forgot to ask you about, but I think it's a very interesting part. This whole time that, uh, that this is all happening and before the murder, Ray has a love interest, he has what was a fiance, and I'm 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 her name is escaping. I'm I'm Esther. Esther, thank you. And she she never came out and really went against Ray. Her father was very anti-Ray, as you can imagine. Yeah. But 
he made several attempts try to win her to, to win her back, didn't he? He did try, uh, but she at that point was having none of it. Because I mean, there's some people that thought maybe she was a part of the master plan, right? To 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 get this to get the money and and live happily ever after, and then. Plans kind of took a, a, a little bit of a southern turn there, it looks like. Yeah, I don't think she was part of the plan, but... Maybe part of Ray's plan. Yeah. Definitely part of yeah. Ray's plan, yeah. definitely. Because he he came back, what, a few times from Kansas? Tried, trying to, I think he tried to have a, a meeting with her, and boy, I think he was in the front door and she ran out the back door. She went out the back, yeah. All right, yeah. so so he's in, he's in Kansas, and he kind of... S- does he settle down? Is he on the straight and narrow? What happens to Ray once he's left Quincy? Oh, he does for a while. He um, Ray has a little problem with the truth sometimes. <laughs> okay. What happened? He, 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 got in the, he got hired as a landscaper, and he put out that he was a graduate of the University of Illinois Landscaping Department School, whatever that was to the point where the University of Illinois wrote him a letter and said, stop using our name. <laughs> Ouch. That, that wouldn't burn. Yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, did he have any run-ins with the law? He did. He Really? He got, he, he got in a little trouble. Started out stealing tires is what he got arrested for but there was a big gang of automobile thieves and automobile part thieves that were operating uh, in kansas and oklahoma and southern missouri and there was speculation that he got into some of that or was recruited by them or affiliated with them or something like that but that was never proven but he did get arrested and he was given the choice of jail or the army at this point we're looking at world war one okay so ray decided he'd rather be in the army and he went down to sign up and the army decided they didn't want him (laughs) too much baggage huh (laughs) well i think maybe it was his eyes i think by that point he had to wear glasses and maybe they weren't taking people with glasses or there but yeah maybe they just didn't want him so he just didn't go back to Wichita. He went to Kansas City and neglected to tell the people in Wichita that he hadn't gone to the army. <laughs> okay, so that that truth, <laughs> that lack of maybe complete transparency was still uh, resounding in his life. Still going on there, yeah. After, I mean, after at the conclusion of your book, I mean, where did you really put Ray? Because I want to, I want to get to kind of a then and now situation of uh, well, where, where, where did the trail run cold for you on Ray at the time? He did. He got more trouble in Kansas City. He got arrested again for um, stealing auto stuff. And he was sentenced to two years in the Missouri State Penitentiary in Jeff City. And he served it. He got out early on good behavior. And then he just flat disappeared. Really? And that's where I lost him for ages. And was I think there was some belief that he was murdered in what New York or something at some point? There, there were a bunch of stories that would appear once every couple of years. Something would show up in the Quincy papers that said this, that, or the other. And one of them was he was killed in New York City by gangsters or something. But that really? wasn't true. No. So let's let's see. This your book, Lies Told Under Oath, came out what about twenty two thousand twelve ish? Is that right? Yeah, about the, yeah. It was a hundred year anniversary. Yeah. Right. Right. And. And if if I think one of the interviews I was reading that you'd done priorly said you were you're looking at like ten years of research. So I mean, yeah. to, just to get to that point, 
so cuts today, you know, 2021, um, 2022. I'm horrible with numbers. Uh, what, what year <laughs> which, is it, guys? Which today are we cutting to? Yes, 22. Okay. That's right. I think it's 22. <laughs> you know, fix that in post, Chris. What what kind of revelations revealed themselves? Because back back then, I mean, I got to imagine your research was very different. The world of research was very manual as opposed to the kind of resources that, you know, you can have today. I mean, is there any kind of like new, you know, web databases that you have access to that you didn't have to access to now that that introduced new information about this case or things that really kind of turned everything on its head? What'd you find out? Well, what I what I found was a reader who was a genealogist really? who was very good at tracing people who didn't want to be found. And she took this up as a hobby and called me up one day and said, hey, I found him. And I said, you got to be kidding me. But she had. It turns out that a lot of people who change their name keep some part of their own name with them. And they often keep some identifying things like a birth date. You know, it's really hard to remember a different birthday. Right. So that's what had happened. Ray changed his name. He took his father's first name, Charles. He took his mother's maiden name, Abel, and he kept his own first name, Ray, as his last name. So he became Charles Abel Ray. Interesting. So what happened to him? Well, he spent some time in Montana where he acquired a wife. He married a rancher's daughter. So there was a story in the paper that said he'd married a school teacher. And I couldn't find where she taught school, but she might have. But anyway, he did. He got a wife and then he ended up in Vancouver, Washington. And once again, he opened a uh, nursery and claimed to be a graduate of the University of <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> among And some other tree surgeon college in Ohio that had also never graduated. Of. But yeah, he lived there um, until... He died in 1940, I think was the date. Wow. So so really kind of set the, the history that people thought they knew on it on its head. You know, we're, we're closing in here on, on, on probably in a, the time we have. But I got to I got to ask is the, I can only imagine the amount of back and forth that you've had, you know, researching all this and kind of putting yourself in those shoes you probably go back and forth. Did he do it? Did he not do it? Where, where oh, are you standing today? Thousands of times I went back and forth. Um, I, I did some research on these. There is a kind of killer who only kills once in a fit of rage. So while there's enough people there to be a serial killer, Ray was not a serial killer, but he may have fallen into that category where if you pushed him just right at the right time or just wrong at the wrong time, um, this could happen. And I can find no other explanation for it. I see. I was on the fence coming into this conversation and, and Beth, you made a few points that kind of reframed a few of the key issues in my head. And the uh, number one, I think uh, I got to go back to is a the state of Charles, the father's body. 
the location of the body, which is not doesn't make any sense. And the possibility that that Charles kind of shut Ray off from a financial standpoint, this starts putting together a picture. And and, and this is only just in my head. I don't know what happened. Right. But this fits the mold, I think, of someone who was just you got a name like Dynamite, a nickname of Dynamite Fanschmidt. You might have a temper. And if, if you're coming into the house and you're maybe you're confronting your dad, it's late on a f- Friday night, right? A Friday night set or Saturday morning. Maybe you've had a few drinks. Maybe you get maybe you get into a heated shuffle. Uh, you know, maybe there was some kind of struggle. I mean, there was obviously yeah. a lot of violence towards Charles specifically. Um, and then you you look at the women. Look at the state of the women. Blanche, if I remember right, they couldn't even say that there was an actual. Uh, uh, signs of an actual axe marks or a kind of a chopping, right? Is that am I misremembering? God, if if you have if you maybe maybe the father was the first victim, maybe it was a fit of rage. Uh, God only knows what's going through your head at that point. You and you're the person covering your tracks, probably. I mean, the severity of of uh, it seems like the severity of the killings. I don't who knows what order it happened in. Nobody really knows. But God, I gotta think if you're you, your little sister's laying there. I mean, what makes more sense, an axe or a pillow? You know, I mean, uh, smothering. I mean, it, it, who knows? I'm I'm making a lot of assumptions here. But here's the other thing: I don't see how those three women in one room yes. could have been killed lying in their beds. How were there which no says struggles? to me? somebody put them back in their beds that is a great point i i wondered that reading reading because everything. yeah one of them uh the school teacher had defensive wounds um and traditionally people that stranger killings they don't take the time or the care to do anything to lay out the bodies in any kind of careful way yeah, I unless I would, it's some kind of a ritual or something weird. That that's all very interesting, and, and you've had God so much time to think about this and and formulate opinions. And I'm just shooting off the cuff here, so God only knows. I'm I, I have no credibility, but um, man, well, I have no answers. I just I have a few opinions, but I have I mean, no answers. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's the that's the real journey here. Is yeah. we there is no destination. I mean, we everybody can have their own opinion, but. You know, if a case like that took place today with the forensics available, I mean, this would be a completely different story and there would be a resolution, I think, 100 percent. And it's one based in science and not speculation. But that's not a luxury we have and we never will. And, you know, it's these kind of stories which have just kind of seeped into the 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 place that we live that have created all these stories and, and paint a picture of, of, you know, the black and white of history is colored with these kind of events. And that's a real reason I think why wild Quincy is, has come out here to really capture that. Cause regardless of a horrific event, it's something that has shaped this community. And I don't, yeah. I wonder how many people have, have just been, you know, meandering through uh, woodland cemetery and don't realize that they drive right by this, the family, they were victims of this brutal axe murder. And they're right there. It's hard to go in there and not go right past their grave. So next time you're in Woodland Cemetery, I think you should really, you know, it's your, it's going to be your first right turn. Just one last piece to this is that poor school teacher. Emma Kempen only graduated from high school in June. 
she was not supposed to be at that school. She was not supposed to be at that house and she was not supposed to be there on Friday night. So she was three different ways in the wrong place at the wrong time. God, what horrible misfortune. That's just, and I believe she's buried in, in Greenmount cemetery. She's in Greenmount. Uh huh. Right. Well, Beth, I, um, I can't thank you enough for coming on here. It's so great to be able to talk this kind of stuff over. Usually, Chris and I, we, we don't have the luxury of having the source of the book to, to just you know bang some ideas off of. And it's been a pleasure, and you've been so gracious with your time. And we want everyone, everyone, go pick up Lies Told Under Oath. It's available here at the Quincy Museum, or not the, the uh, Quincy History Museum. Also, I'm sure you can find it on Amazon, and it's a great read. There's so much detail that we'll never be able to get to, and I highly encourage it. Chris, any closing thoughts? No, uh, no, I, I, I just am um, with you on that, Beth. Thank you so much for being here and talking with us, and um, well, uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again uh, in the future. Well, thank you for having me. You guys do a great podcast, and you're doing a really good service for Quincy. History needs to be out there. We, Thank you very we much. couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. All right. Well, that is a look at the 1912 Fan Schmidt murder. We'll be back with more on Wild Quincy after this. Right here? Ship my pants? You're kidding. You can ship your pants right here. You hear that? I can ship my pants for free. Wow. I just may ship my pants. Yeah, ship your pants. Billy, you can ship your pants, too. I can't wait to ship my pants, Dad. I just shipped my pants, and it's very convenient. Very convenient. I just shipped my drawers. I just shipped my nightie. I just shipped my bed. If you can't find what you're looking for in store, we'll find it at Kmart.com right now and ship it to you for free. Well, Travis, um, that is not an old ad by any means, but it's still a pretty hilarious one. <laughs> uh, that that just, I don't know what the creative agency was that did that, but that was amazing. Then they did a few piggybacking off that one, too. Um, but I can't remember the the little little witticisms in that one. Well, we're talking about uh, the, the great, the big K, Kmart. Uh, you know Kmart from 36th and Broadway. And Travis, the reason why I pulled this one off is because I was having a conversation with the guys that I work with. And you know, they're, they're, they're older in age. They, uh, they've, they've seen the history of Quincy. They've, they've been around for the years to see kind of how things have progressed. And we had a conversation. Let me start real quick how this started. I was talking about how I used to miss when we used to take pigs to the the, uh, the the sale barn to sell okay. that they used to have these bottles of, of soda like the old glass bottles of soda and man it was nothing better than than sorting hogs and then going to the to the sale barn and getting one of those glass bottles of soda it's cold anyway it's colder when it's glass I oh think. it just tastes so good uh anyway so uh i got to the question of like oh well uh, i was talking to one of the guys it's like where did you guys sell your hogs at because they had hogs too and it was much before i was doing the hog stuff and they're like oh um we brought them into quincy and i was like where the hell did you bring him into Quincy yet? <laughs> okay, right, right. so come to find out, he's like, "Oh, we the 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 barn was at 36th and Broadway." Really? I went, "Are you kidding me?" And he's like, "Yeah, it was across from Kmart." Huh? How about that? Uh, yeah. So if you guys aren't familiar, and I did some researching, Travis, and uh, yeah, he is. It's it's right. Uh, there was across from Kmart. It was a. Oh, I was trying to see where it's at now. Um, it was a. Uh, 
uh, I can't remember the name. I had it and I can't find it in front of me now. But it, there was a um, there was an actual where uh, High V's at was actually the yards for the sale barn okay. and then the sale barn was almost from my understanding of what they were saying the sale barn was practically where pizza huts at today interesting so right there well, i mean well that was the edge of town i mean yeah it's 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 crazy to stop and think about but yeah that's uh so this also sent me change this also sent me down another road of trying to find out when kmart opened in quincy Okay. And I found the answer. Oh, boy. I was doing some research in the archives, and I came across this article, and it says, One of Quincy's newest merchants additions, the big Kmart at 36th and Broadway, has obviously had a big run of shoppers since its recent opening. Manager Robert Earhart, tending to take cautious approach, said, We're so new we haven't had or we haven't anything with which to compare our business. He appears pleased with November and early December sales, however, and predicted the Kmart operations would be refined and made more efficient with the experience gained between now and Christmas. This was uh, uh, in the paper for December 5th of 1971. Oh, wow. That's further than I thought it'd be. Yeah. Kmart was around sometime. It looks like it opened in the 1970s. That's a pretty good run. Had a good run. Uh, yeah, pour or one I should out. say 1970. Pour one out for the big K, but uh, you know the, that bullseye is coming, so that's going to rot Quincy's world. Exactly, and that's another yeah. reason to talk about what uh, about talk about that building because that building's literally been around since 1970 as well. So uh, it's definitely had had a run. And by the way, the Kmart in general, uh, the Kmart. I don't remember exactly when the Kmart closed in Quincy. I would say it's probably only been the last five years or so. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, it was during a time when Kmart was shrinking in size in general. In late 2019, they closed 120 Kmart stores. And then uh, uh, November of that same year, they announced another 45 stores closing. And then finally, as of April 16th of this year, 2022, only nine stores remained open, with three of them being in the lower 48. Oh, I didn't realize there was any at all. That's surprising. Wow. So that is the history of Kmart. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I should say, is we're going to have a nice uh, target to be looking at. And they're doing a lot of work if you haven't been by there lately. You so. guys are going to ship yourself when it opens. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, it was such a good ad. But then like six years later after that ad ran, it was like, nope, we're done. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it was kind of a kind of a dark prophecy with the whole competing with Amazon online oh, services. Yeah. You know, it was, you could kind of see the the nails in the coffin at that point, but it was a it was a heck of a last ditch effort to try to get on that shipping I mean, ordering online game. But uh, wasn't enough. Wasn't enough. Old Jeffy Bezos made it work. That's right, uh, Traps. I think it's time to hear the golden pipes. Here they are right now, kids. And now it's time for words of wisdom from Adams County. All right, we dig into the wisdom in wit of our forefathers and foremothers of Adams County. And uh, we turn to a number that was provided by Mary Wilson. Uh, I believe it's Wise Heights. Wise uh, that would be That would be my uh, mother-in-law-in-law. Oh, uh, okay. I, I, I don't know how that works technically when, when my father-in-law – has a new, another why uh yeah let's just uh yeah that's it's it's like apple it's like what came first it's it's mary it's, it's family chris it's just mary. mary thanks mary well mary picked a good section travis because she picked between death and burial oh it's gonna get juicy 
So hers, um, that her specific number is not bad, but however, I did a little extra searching and I found some other ones that were even better. So we're going to start with hers. I'm going to give you a couple extras. Okay. All right. So here's Mary's. Uh, it was, uh, 10,253. As soon as a person dies, his picture begins to fade. Okay. Ooh. That's like back um, to future, right? A little back yeah. to future reference. So let's do uh, two more here. Uh, oh yeah. I didn't think about the back to the future reference. Oh. It's good stuff. 10,252. Never allow anyone to play music, sing, or speak loudly in a house where there's a corpse or another dead person will be come before the end of the year. Wow. <laughs> dead people sp- hate live music. Don't speak loudly. Bad, 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 bad. You see, that's why you don't see a lot of concerts in the, the graveyards these days. Cemetery concerts. But we go to... Huge, huge in the Victorian age, yeah. Yeah, we go to the kicker. Here is the kicker. Oh 10,226. As soon as the head of a family dies, someone must tell all the animals about his death or they will die too. Words of wisdom from Adams County. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, jeez. Tell the animals. Fido, come here. We need to have a talk. <laughs> Did anybody tell Bessie? Bessie's not going to be uh, milking right for the next couple days if we don't tell straight, her about what happened. Straight cottage cheese. That's, <laughs> that's horrible. You got to love the wit and wisdom uh, of our forefathers and foremothers. It, it, gold every time. Gold. Golden voice. Gold. Golden wisdom. It's a beautiful thing. Can't go wrong. All right, Travis, let's wrap things up. Question of the day. Oh, oh yeah. by the way, before we do that, let's do this real quick. Uh, we talked to Beth. Uh, we thank you her so much for coming on again. That was such an awesome interview. We talked to her. She's going to be on for our Patreon episode. So if you want to hear more, we're going to get into more of the speculation, uh, a little bit more of some of the things we didn't cover. So uh, Travis, looking really forward to talking to her on Patreon. You know what? If anybody, you know, if if anybody has any questions about the episode. We'll we'll address those on the Patreon side, um, which is a further incentive to get in on the fun of being a wild thing on the Patreon side. But yeah, we're really looking forward to. We got lots of questions, not only about the case, but about the whole process of writing the book too. So it, it'll be a great episode, Chris. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it, and uh, so be listening for that coming up here in a few weeks. It won't be the the next Patreon episode because we have some conflicts with time and stuff. Uh, but we'll have her uh, probably on the next uh, one of the next episodes coming up after that. All right, Travis, let's get to this question of the day. You, have you pondered? Have you thought? Do you know? I think I know, but let's revisit. Ooh, okay. So here's the question: Between the 1840s and 1870s, Quincy had a large influx of German migrants coming into town. By 1870, what percentage of the population in Quincy was German? Was it 18%, 26%, 43%, or 54%? Travis, your thoughts. Well, I'm a little I'm a little on the fence between 43 and did you say 55? 54? 54, yeah. So from, part of me thinks it's 43 and you just wanted to give me one that was over the bigger than the actual oh. percent to mess with me. <laughs> But you you came into that question pretty quick, so maybe you didn't have time to overthink it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say fifty four. Final answer. Yeah, final answer. You should have thought that I mm. thought more <laughs> than I did, <laughs> because the answer is actually forty three percent. You're right. I had to add an extra number on the top. Why didn't I trust my gut? <laughs> I I should have trusted my gut, Chris. I know how your mind works. Yep. Uh, so, so forty yeah, three yeah. percent. That's that's still saying something. 
It's a lot. I mean, that's uh, that's almost half of the population by 1870 was of German uh, immigrants. But the question, Travis, comes this. What if that didn't happen? Oh. We are digging into the what if again, another episode of that coming your way, where we're going to dig into the question of what if the German migration to Quincy didn't happen? How would Quincy look different today? Interesting, interesting. That Boy, you got me curious. I guess yeah. we're going to figure it out in the next couple weeks, huh? We're going to dive deep and try to figure that answer out coming up on the next episode of Wild Quincy. Before we wrap this episode up, Travis, are we missing anything? If you have any questions, comments, or any other reason to text or call us, do so at 612-666-9453. You can also drop us a note at wildquincy at gmail.com. Uh, we appreciate anything you have to say, feedback, uh, you find us on the social channels, and yeah, thanks for listening. Tell a friend. For Travis Hoffman, I'm Chris Ketters. You've been listening to Wild Quincy. We'll catch you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Wild Quincy is released every other Tuesday and is produced by Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Sound designed by Downdraft Sound and Editing and music by Travis Hoffman Music. I'm Bo Beecraft. And thanks for listening to Wild Quincy.